Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles, month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our second episode, we'll talk about With the Beatles and listen as the Beatles play covers and investigate studio production. And we're going to watch the Fab Four as they make their American TV debut, so stick around. Once again, joining me on this excavation of the Beatles discography is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer of the music blog, The Delete Bin. How are you, Rob? I'm doing well. And joining us this month is Andrew Flint, a man with few credits, but he creates one of the best monthly music mixes around. Good of you to be here today, Andrew. Oh, glad to be here, and thanks for saying that. So I'm just going to recap what this is all about. This New Year's, I had the idea to listen to every studio album of the Beatles every month in 2016. I'm doing it. Andrew's doing it. I'm making Rob doing it. (laughs) Others are doing it. And I thought we should do a podcast about it, which is why the two of you are here. All right. And this is what brings us here today. So now that we've successfully recapped, we're going to go to this month's selection with the Beatles, which was released on a historic day, November 22nd, 1963. So let's take a look at with the Beatles in two minutes, more or less. That I'm missing the lips I am missing and hope that my dreams will come true. So, Rob, by this point, the Beatles are topping the charts in the UK and have started touring in Europe. What happens with the band when they come in to go do this album? I think they're they're pretty tired by this point. Um, you know, their uh, their success was not 
uh, immediate as far as uh, they were concerned. But uh, so as such, the the roller coaster ride was was about to begin. I think that's really what sets the stage for this record. Whereas the studio sessions for Please Please Me was only like two days. I mean, with the Beatles, they were they recorded across four months. Um, this, is, this is so they're they're obviously exploring the studio environment in a way that they hadn't with uh, with their previous album. I get the impression too that um, more demands are being made on them. Um, so it's not like they could, you know, just sort of casually decide, oh, well, we'll just make an album today. Uh, you know, there were some demands on them to to actually create something that showed that they progressed in some way or, you know, they had more people to impress because, uh, and so uh, as, as a result of that, I think that there was a lot more pressure on them for this run. I guess, Andrew, that leads me to ask, what kind of evolutionary leap do you think has taken place between Please Please Me and With the Beatles? Well, that's a good question. I think on Facebook, I called the album a revelation and it really was or, or is. So, at, well, first I have to say at some point, over the past, you know, X 40 years, I've heard all the Beatles albums, but I've never really lived with them in the way we're doing right now. And I think I knew Please Please Me a lot better. I mean, you always get that, let's go back and see where it all started. And the reviews of With the Beatles basically say it's more the same. And on one hand, that's true. You know, it's got the same split of eight new tracks to six covers. And it's still a band that's uh, stuck in Mercy Beat and early rock and roll, but I really wasn't prepared for a sequel of this level. Yeah, it, I mean, it shares some similarities with Please Please Me, but it's starting to develop its own tone. They're adding depth. Specifically, the eight Beatles compositions are really the highlights. Lennon and McCartney are already developing their craft. It's more polished. Um, you know, it's left less garage-like, rough around the edges in the first album. But the real revelation here is, this is what, eight months after the first album? Not the years that you see between albums these days, but just a matter of months. And that's why I would call this album a revelation. What did you, what did you think, Rob? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it a revelation for you? Uh, it was when uh, It Won't Be Long started. That that's the because that's the greatest opening track on any record by anyone. The punch of that that song starting this this album is is undeniable, and it doesn't it doesn't get any less uh, impactful for however many times I've listened to this record. Uh, it, it's just an amazing "we're here, and we're here to stay" type of type of statement. To me, it, it shows a great confidence, and maybe that's the difference between uh, this one and "Please Please Me," uh, and that is that they were no longer kind of strangers to to that studio environment. You know, they were they knew exactly what they were doing, uh, and they came in with some of their strongest material. Uh, and that song in particular, uh, as I said, it's it's the greatest opening song of any record. I think it's just it's just amazing. It's one of my favorite of their songs. 
it's funny for me because I agreed with Andrew and, and, and Andrew, Andrew managed to start listening to with the Beatles about four hours before I, I did. And so I was like, whoa, what's the heck's all this about? So, and then I turned it on and went, whoa, he's right. It's uh, it really is a it really is a, an evolutionary leap uh, from Please Please Me. And I think one of the things is that it feels like they're much more embedded in the studio process. Yeah. They, they re- it's got way more overdubs. It's, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they've clearly been paying attention to how it was and and I think and I think George Martin has has warmed to them too in a, in a way that I you know I think the first one is just like oh let's just you know <laughs> let's do some let's do some mics on the instruments we'll do some mics on the vocals and that's it and and this one actually appears to actually have been properly mixed and and is and there's been really th- some great interest, instrumentation on it that uh, that I think was different well here's what I I think was one of the things that happened uh, that is that uh, we talked in in the last episode about uh, George Martin being a little bit unsure about the the talents of these guys when they first came in, you know, he he replaced Ringo in a couple of tunes, for for instance. But here, I think it shows that George Martin was fully aware of how good uh, writers uh, Lennon and McCartney was, uh, and even George Harrison gets a look in, you know, uh, on this record. Um, but I, I think it's the confidence in the songwriting that probably uh, indicated to George Martin, right, okay, we're going to do this full full bore because these guys can write. And I, I think that's really the thing that, that makes the difference. Every, everybody was fully committed. It's the first time you get to hear Martin playing piano on an album, and he has a very, very distinctive playing style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he loves those bass notes. And, uh, and, yeah, and, uh, very formalized uh, playing in some ways. It is. Yeah. It is, and it's kind and, of an interesting contrast with 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 the rest of the the instruments too. And Eddie slightly detunes it on uh, on money. It's it's a very kind of it's interesting that he's willing to rough it up. Oh, that's another one of my favorite tunes. It, it it goes out on on the same strength it came in on. Anyway, we'll get to that one because I want to talk about that one. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Andrew? Do you how do you, how do you feel the sort of balance between production and and writing kind of went with this one? Uh, I think, as I say, I think it's a big step forward, definitely on the writing. And Rob's absolutely correct that the opening of it won't be long. You can't beat that, nor can you beat the close on money. But yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that one. <laughs> one thing, though, on the, on the production values, and it's a little thing, but it drives me nuts. Whoever is in charge of the fade outs is not my friend. <laughs> I mean, some like some of the songs end properly and musically, like "All My Loving," "All My Loving," boom, and you're done. But some of the others that they fade out, it's like the guys just, yeah, we're done here, and cranks it way down so fast, and you're left going, "But hey, I I was listening to that." So yeah. that one kind of drives me nuts. Other than that, the production levels, there's a big step up here from "Please Please Me." As I say, you've gone from you know, roughhousing garage band to much closer to a fully produced album. Nowhere near where they're going to get to, but you can see the progression. For sure. It's interesting because in the last episode, we talked about uh, whether or not we saw in Please Please Me, the band that will kind of revolutionize music over the next seven years. Are, are we closer to that in in with the Beatles? I'm not sure. Um, but again, I think I think some of the things that we saw in Please Please Me, again, their imaginative use of chords, that famous thing about the Aeolian cadences in Not a Second Time and all that the musicologists kind of going uh, gaga over the Beatles uh, compositional skills. 
you know, that was just that was just starting and things like that. But we're still swimming in that same sea where not a lot was expected out of out of pop musicians, musically speaking. And so it would have been really, again, really hard to tell any sort of revolutionary spirit because that again, that vocabulary had not been built yet. Uh, it was in the process of being built at, at this time. And I think the fact that we're still talking almost a 50-50 split of new music to covers also suggests that we maybe don't quite see where these guys are going yet. But it's funny to me, because, and I wanted to talk about the, the, the amount of covers on this, because it really seems much more noticeable that there are covers on this than the last one. The last one, it felt a little more integrated. This one, you really kind of notice when they're doing covers. But at the same time, I mean, one of my favorite songs on the album is Please Mr. Postman, which is not, it's so brilliantly done. It's kind of this weird kind of, you know, balance where even when they're doing a song like that, they're, they're, they're really putting all, all of it in. I mean, I had like two niggles with the album. So it's not all lollipops, rainbows, and unicorns. It never is with you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, one of them was the fade-outs. The other is exactly as you say, the integration of the covers on Please Please Me, they fit right in. You really are talking a Mercy Beat or early rock and roll album. Here, you're already starting to see progression of the Beatles, and the covers don't fit quite as well. Not to say that they're bad. I mean, Please, Mr. Postman has done really well. Um, Yeah. Roll over, roll over Beethoven. Beethoven. Maybe roll over Beethoven is too much of a straight Chuck Berry sound, but it's not bad. But you're now talking about songs that are, you know, like a half era, a semi era behind where the Beatles are, and they stand out. They stand out yeah. as not quite as integrated. It's true. I, I really noticed that with uh, Till There Was You, which is I still find one of the oddest covers the Beatles have ever done. Yeah, whether or not you agree with the Latin lilt that they added in there, you have to admit that it's no longer the same song as the Music Man had. No, it's true. Uh, as far as the cover versions go, if I can interject, oh, you can tell means. that there was a sort of difference between the covers and the original compositions. Although having said that, um, there are there are a couple of filler tunes on this from them. So they were still developing their their craft a little bit. Like th- this, this still seems like their sort of postgraduate work in terms of their songwriting. In some ways, you know, they're they're still studying the masters. Uh, and frankly, I have to say that uh, their version of uh, Rollover Beethoven kicks all kinds of ass all day long, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, and George George Harrison is just a superb melodic guitar player. Uh, and and if you want to talk about this album as a whole, that's definitely one of the one of the highlights. Just George's guitar work on this is just exemplary, uh, and that goes across all all the songs, like covers, Lennon and McCartney ones, uh, even even the guitar break on his own uh, "Don't Bother Me." Just it's just so awesome, uh, and as such, that's a real unifying element for me just the the playing the playing is just superb yeah it really is um and and it's and it's interesting it's it's an album where george really comes into his own in many yeah ways. i mean a lot of people knock uh, don't bother me as sort of a you know a bit pedestrian or whatever it is but i like it because it's a george harrison why don't you just leave me alone type song which he 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 did a number of songs like that like well into his career sort of grump he was the king of grump rock you know and that's a <laughs> That's that's a real uh, that's that that's where he started, you know. 
I really rate uh, Don't Bother Me highly. It's one of my favorite tracks on the album. It's it, it's very much of its time. It, it very much feels like a song that could only have been written and, and produced in 1963. Yeah. But it ha- but I, I really love the chorus bit where he just sort of pivots the music about 45 degrees. And, and, and I really, really... And the guitar solo. That's... The guitar solo. Like that, that to me is... It's so awesome. Like you can sing in every solo that that he plays on this record, and and many other records too. I mean that that was just his his approach. His approach was how do I make this song better? And his playing uh, really underscores. Uh, we're going to talk about George Harrison this whole time, but it, <laughs> it, it, that really is a, a unifying uh, element for me. So, what are some of the standout tracks on the album? Standouts for me are the opener. It won't be long. Um, I am a big fan of Don't Bother Me. I take that over, say, All My Loving any day. And the closing, even though the closer is a, a cover, they blow it out of the water with money. Yeah, agreed. Well, I think I'm with you. I love I Won't Be Long. Uh, the one I really love is uh, is Please, Mr. Postman. I just think it's just so kind of exuberant, and they just, and their harmonies are so tight. Uh, Please, Mr. Postman was originally recorded by the Marvelettes. It was a sort of a girl group type of type of song, um, and uh, I think the Beatles at this point in time were still very much enamored of that of that particular sound, uh, and they adapted it uh, and they integrated it into a lot of their early early work. Uh, and because they sang so well together, that's to me that's why that song comes off so well, because of the of the. Uh, the, the sort of push me pull you type lead voice and and the backup voices which they understood very well on an instinctive level on that whole girl girl group sound and they completely ignore the whole ge- gender thing utterly like they changed the you know they they changed the uh the pronoun around a little bit but the actual sound of the record uh they, they don't try to make it masculine it's it's just it just is what it is which to me is why it works so well also really love not a second time it's such a great song um that is my that is my deep cut of the album <laughs> it's a, it is really just uh they, everything in that thing just works melodically and 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 i love how uh, how george martin has in, inserted himself into the song yeah those are my i will ideas. back you up on not a second time and it's a nice lead into money i mean it makes a good double close to the album as far as picks i'll also go with it won't be long i've already talked about that <laughs> Uh, you really got a hold on me is really rivals, almost rivals the, uh, the Smokey Robinson one. That is one of the highlights of the album easily. And, uh, and money of course, uh, is, it's like they, when Lennon is singing it, he almost forgets it's 1963, you know, he forgets to be polite and, uh, and he forgets to, uh, to be really formalized when he goes, oh, yeah, I want to be free. It just it just that is that to me makes me weep with joy when he says that because it's such an unrestrained <laughs> rock and roll punk mo- uh, 
punk rock type of sound or a, a, just an effusion of emotion there. I just, that, that is uh, unbeatable. It's interesting. This is the second time, Rob, you've talked about sort of the kind of, uh, I guess it would be a, almost a, a future influence on punk. The, the, uh, it's, it's something I don't actually think of the Beatles being, but you're, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> well, I mean, when they were in Hamburg, I mean, that's what they were doing. They were playing punk. Uh, they, there just wasn't, it just wasn't the, you know, that, that, that term didn't exist in, in that way. Well, it did exist, but not in that particular, uh, musical context. But basically, they were taking old R&B and they were wiring it through a cheap, you know, amplifiers and whatever it was. And they were playing those songs on speed. I mean, that is punk rock to me. I I just and and it and it filters down into a lot of their their studio work as well. Well, I think we'll just leave the discussion there with with the Beatles. But if you, the listener, have anything you'd like to say, you can send us an email at Beatles at gemgeekerrarebug.com and We'll eventually have a website for this, too. Finally, every episode, we're going to have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen or watch to some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And this month, we've been watching this. And the Beatles got a great kick out of it. We just received a wire, they did, from Elvis Presley and Colonel Tom Parker, wishing them a tremendous success in our country. And I think that was very, very nice. Now this... Now this... This particular season, we've had many exciting nights on the stage, thanks to our little Italian mouse, Topo Gigio, thanks to Belgium singing nun, Sister Severe, the Milton Berle, the Obratsov puppets, Van Heflin, the stars of Case of Libel, and last Sunday, the, of course, the never-to-be-forgotten teaming on our stage of Sammy Davis Jr. and Ella Fitzgerald. Now, tonight, the whole country is waiting to hear England's Beatles, and you're going to hear them, and they're tremendous ambassadors of goodwill after this commercial. Now, if you're a person that has to be shown... Here's a really big group from all new Aeroshade. That's the introduction to the Beatles' first appearance on American TV, namely the Ed Sullivan Show from February 1964. The whole episode, not just the Beatles segments, but the other acts and commercials, is available on DVD, and you can find it on some video streaming sites that we won't name. (laughs) Now, Andrew, what was it like to see the Beatles in context as they would have been seen on a Sunday night on American television in 1964? It was absolutely fascinating. And I did the whole run, commercials included, uh, even the terrible card <laughs> tricks and everything. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you could tell when they first get started that they're maybe not 100% sure of themselves out of the gate. Uh, the kids are screaming already, so that's fine. But over the two sessions that they run, by the end of it, they are taking the house apart. It's just great. What really fascinated me about the Beatles' performance is, is how immediately telegenic they are. I mean, they'd already had practice on British television already, but but they are they they totally know they're surrounded by cameras and they are just totally like they they're they just are super telegenic while the entire time and it's really quite quite amazing. I was really quite taken by all the stuff in between the acts because they immediately follow up, you know, the Beatles with a sleight-of-hand magician whose whole shtick is very self-effacing and very European and is really has no place in a, in a theater full of screaming 14-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yes. think this is a, I think this is another example of uh, it being another era um, yeah. and uh, just show business being this big bucket that, you know, somebody who is a plate spinner 
and some other person who's playing the bagpipes and another person who tells jokes like they they all belong in the same bucket you know and yeah. I, I think that's the world that that ed sullivan that the sullivan show came out of so it's total variety but it's just fascinating to me to sort of watch them kind of follow it up and 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 the guy has got, got is playing to a dead room it is so obvious he is so obvious <laughs> Poor he's not bastard. Getting, i know and, <laughs> and it's funny i was listening to a podcast i think it was snap judgment about a money of an american this american life where they interview um where they interview mitzi mccall who did did a comedy sketch on, on that same show and their comedy sketch dies it is absolutely dead silence the entire time you know this is their this is their big break and and they can only the only laugh they get is because they make a joke about the beatles and it it's just literally improv on the fly. But it's so fascinating to me to sort of watch it because, you know, you can kind of see that everyone's just waiting for the next Beatles to come on next. Yeah. And, and Sullivan was so canny in how he put them on at the beginning and the end of the show. And not yeah. even at, and at the very end of the show. He sort of put it second to last so they can follow it up with a tumbler. The, the tumblers can, can boast that the Beatles open for them. You know, <laughs> it's their, it's their claim to fame. It's true. It's true. The other act in that show I really liked was uh, Frank Gorshin, actually, who just does, does an impressionist thing, and he's the only one who actually gets laughs from the audience pretty much the uh, the rest of the time. Uh, they had an act from Oliver, where all where uh, the Artful Dodgers played by Davy Jones. That's right. He, he would yes. he would only uh, enjoy the screaming, you know, adulation a few years later when he became <laughs> a part of the Monkees. Right. Yeah. It was utterly bizarre. Um, Rob, what did you make of the Beatles' performance? It's during? so difficult for me to kind of filter it through. Um, I mean, I wasn't sort of around when when it was first broadcast, um, but it's been it's like a myth, you know. It's and it's even talked about in in a mythic sort of way. The fact that uh, these four guys from this exotic land of Liverpool, you know, had come uh, to play for an American audience. Um, is is it's it's like a quest myth or something, um, and it certainly started uh, bands, you know, like the Birds, famously, like David Crosby saw the uh, the broadcast and instantly said, "All right, I'm starting a band." And and you know, there's there's a lot of stories like that. Uh, that it's it was a brush fire. It wasn't just a performance, you know, and it in some ways it can't be judged just as a performance because of what it meant, what it meant for music, um, but also what it meant for television. I mean, I think it was a big uh, moment for television. I mean, if there was ever any doubt that television would last well into the 21st century, I mean, I, I, I think that particular show cemented television's role in uh, in culture. So it's such a big question, and there's so many moving pieces to that. It's almost hard to just cr critique the actual performance i mean it was revelatory it is i do find their performance of i saw her standing there a bit off it's a it's 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 it's, it's as though they're singing off key I, I can quite figure it out but you know they may be trying to also sing over 600 screaming screaming 14 year olds so and may, and to that. that point to that point i mean they uh, eventually that was the very reason they stopped touring you know because they it you couldn't judge the the performances uh, them as musicians it was this it 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 meant so much more to people and it had sort of visceral impact on people you can see where the beatles are are actually headed towards becoming a commodity like 
Sullivan was no fool. He he I, he saw the commotion they were creating in New York when they were there, and immediately booked them not just for that week, but the next two weeks. And you know, yeah. he even actually moved the show to Florida to actually the following week to actually broadcast, and then brought them back to New York the following week, I believe. You know, at this point, the Beatles are starting to move away from being you know novelty act from Britain to being kind of a, a, a real commodity in many ways. And also, I think another important point was that this was the first step on the road to the music not necessarily being American music or British music or uh, it wasn't tied to any one culture anymore uh, part- and partially thanks to this type of or to this this performance rather uh, it didn't matter where these guys are from because they helped inspire people to start bands of their own and pretty soon it was just all music you know and it, it sort of transcended culture I think that's a good place to end it off And that's all the time we have. We'll be back sooner than you think for a discussion of the Beatles' third album, which was part of their 1964 film, A Hard Day's Night. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Andrew Flint. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time.